This sermon was recorded online during our season of Shelter in Place in Mountain View, California. We're in the season of Ordinary Time, and the lectionary readings for the New Testament, as you heard just a minute ago, are from the book of Ephesians. And the particular chapter that we're in today, chapter 2, is one of the foundational texts for how we understand ourselves as a community of believers, as people who belong to the Lord, as people who are meant to reflect that, not only in our individual lives, but also in our lives together. So when you hear or you read church theology, you're going to find yourself pointed back to Ephesians 2. And then two weeks from now, our lectionary takes us to Ephesians 4, which is about the gifts that God has given us. And he gives each of us gifts, talents, time to be used, not just for, not for ourselves, but to build up the saints for the works of service so that all of us together by the contribution of who we are and what we have and the insights that God has given us and the gifts grow up into the fuller knowledge of God. The point being, we cannot understand God unless we are together and using all of who we are. And so today is sort of part one on this little mini uh, series, two part series on the church and understanding who we are as a community. And then, so this is foundational for today. And Two weeks from now, we'll be talking about how this works out. Today, we're looking at kind of what it means for us collectively to be members of one another. And two weeks from now, we'll look at kind of the individuality piece of that. So looking again, returning to Ephesians as our text, it's, it is sort of this, this stunning discourse on what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. He has made us reconciled with God the Father. He has made a way where we had no way to belong to God through his son and to experience beginning now in this life, but ultimately when Christ comes for us again, the life that we were meant to have, a life of fullness, a life of well-being, a life that manifests the love that was always meant to characterize the people of God was meant to characterize Adam and Eve, but we all know the fall and all those things that kind of intervene. But this is a return. This is an announcement of being returned to that, to being restored, to being rescued. Right on cue. Uh, we have <laughs> the key theme of this. When we talk about reconciliation, we talk about these things. We're going to talk about the, the text today uses the word peace that we understand these things in the terms of peace, that Jesus, by his acts of dying for us and being raised by, from the dead by his father, peace has been restored to us. And so peace is a way of understanding the reconciliation that is ours. And so we know that that's probably good theology in a sense. You, you know that probably not sharing anything new, but hopefully a, 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 a timely reminder. But more importantly, I want us to be dwelling in that peace because peace isn't a one-time transaction. It's not just a theological point. It is meant to be an ongoing, everyday, and more common than we would choose to admit in our own life, experience. And so the key phrase in that verse 14 that was read, he himself is our peace. 
that peace comes out of this relationship with God. And peace in that concept is based on reconciliation, but it is an expansive term. It means it is a sense of well-being, one commentator says, in its widest sense, not only in terms of reconciliation with God, but also in terms of harmony with one another, in terms of understanding the power, the protection, the wholeness that is in Christ. These are all ways that the term peace has been used both in Old Testament and Paul echoes these and enforces them in the New Testament. So he himself, Jesus, is our peace. Now I say this, and I want us to start with, in order to be members of the church that he's called us to, we have to be people of peace connected to the Lord. And, and I, I find you think, well, how do, I, how do I do that? Or maybe you come today and you're not, really, you're not as peaceful as you would like to be. There's maybe a low-grade anxiety or some kind of disconnect. And that's understandable in a lot of ways. There's times where just the pressures of this day and of, of this life and jobs and those things can, can get us preoccupied so that we forget that Jesus is, in fact, our peace. Or we just perhaps fly a little too close to the sun in terms of the world. We fly a little bit where we're too over-invested in what the world offers, whether that's self-advancement, the good opinion of others, acquisitions of goods. All those have their place, but if they become defining for who we are, then, then the Lord is gently pulling us away from that, gently reminding us that He, not those things, is our peace. And so sometimes anxiety is kind of a little alarm bell or a sense of unsettledness that we're, we were a little over-invested. But the peace, but sometimes Jesus himself disrupts our peace for a reason. And, I, and we see that in the gospel account that Cindy read. It's the feeding of the 5,000 according to Mark. And if you think about it, and, and, you know, this is a great day of ministry in the lives of the disciples. They're like, this is awesome, God. This is like people are says streaming from every town. They're coming to this, this hillside to hear Jesus. And these guys are all pre-IPO. They're like, I got in on the ground floor. This is phenomenal. I was there with just 12 other guys. You know, we didn't know what this would turn out. And now there's literally thousands of people showing up and they're hanging on your word. And I'm part of this. This is awesome. But of course, this gospel account is in here, not for the feeding of the five, not for the crowds that come, but for the way that the Lord kind of turns the tables on the disciples themselves. Think about it. You know, one of the ways that you read scripture from an Ignatian perspective is saying this, one of his spiritual exercises was, was to encourage people to put themselves into the text. You can put yourself as a member of the crowd. You could put yourself as the little kid who had the five loaves and the two fish. Probably be good to put yourself in the role of the disciple right now because the disciples are the one who are experiencing this and this kind of sense of what a great ministry day turns into a test. And Jesus says to them, well, they say to him, hey, time to go. Great day. Lots of fun. Now you all got to head to town so that they can be fed. They actually say that to the Lord. And the Lord with one command totally blows up their day. And he says, you give them something to eat. Like, you know, they got some sharp guys in this group. They quickly calculate. That's a half a year's wage. I don't think we can do it. Plus, we've got travel time and all this other stuff. This isn't going to happen. He's given them something, frankly, impossible to do on their own. He has disrupted their sense of peace in themselves, in their normal plan. Why? Because he has a plan. And so he, you know, he commands them to have the people sit down, bring what you got, and he blesses it, and everybody is fed. 
And so in that, when we, when we think about what it means that Jesus is our peace, we should see that whatever he has called us to do in this life, whatever he has called us to do or you have signed up to do, if you're Maybe when you got married, you thought this was great. I can't wait that we have a lifetime of fun and bliss. I don't know what some of these older couples are experiencing. I, I just don't get it. And then sometime in your marriage, you go, wow, this is harder than I thought. This requires more thinking than I can do. This requires more grace. I'm an imperfect person. And what's more, I've actually married an imperfect person. I didn't know that. They're an imperfect person. And so two imperfect people getting together, you, you are in a covenant marriage that you cannot possibly fulfill apart from the work of Christ. When Jesus says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. You know, we, if, if that's your situation, you're, you've got some challenges right now in your most important relationships. And the Lord is saying, will you be that husband or you be that wife or you be that parent or you be that colleague, you be that team member. And you're like, you know, we, we're, we're starting to hear these sort of alarm bells going off, realizing that we cannot do that. And that's precisely the point that Jesus is making. You cannot do that. I need to be your peace. I need to be, if you trust me to work it out in a way that you can't see now, if you trust me, that is the source of the peace. I will provide that. I will work it out according to my will so that I am glorified. And you, your faithfulness in that is a testimony to the fact that you belong to me. So whatever hard situation that we are in, Jesus is our peace. Now, I don't mean, you know, sometimes we can think of that from sort of a triumphant point of view. We, we sort of think, oh, that means every prayer that I'm going to pray is going to get answered the way I want it to be answered. Okay, no. But I would say that most prayers that we pray do get answered in the way that we would like. Part of the reason for that is that we are praying in accordance with the Spirit. So that's good news. But there are times where what we are praying for is not happening or something that has happened in our life has uh, unalterably changed us. We, are, we will not be the same. We've suffered a death. We've suffered a loss. We've suffered some chronic health issue and it's not going to get better. Is Jesus still our peace in the midst of that? I want to say the answer is yes. And how is he? Because his peace is not tied just to life on this earth. In this life, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome. Or in this world, you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so, you know, whatever we go through, the Lord, we have the peace and the sense of well-being in every respect. And the fullness of that well-being is known not in this life, but in the next. We may not feel, you know, we may be suffering under real challenges, real issues, facing tragic circumstances. But the, the hope and the confidence in the peace of the Lord and in, in what, his re, what his death and resurrection points us to is that one day we will all be together in the new Jerusalem where there's no more crying, no more death, no more mourning, no more pain. All these things in this life have passed away. So Jesus is our peace is true now. Jesus is our peace is true in circumstances that we face. But its ultimate expression comes when we are once again with him. And that leads to the second piece. We are together with him. Uh, we are together with him. This is a lot of what we, of what our text is telling us about. Remember, it says he himself is our peace. And then, then it goes on to say, and he has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier. 
So first, we've, gotten, we've just gotten in touch with the way that the Lord is our peace for us as individuals and his reconciliation. And now he says, because you have been uh, reconciled to me and you are a person of peace, because I am your peace, now, this is, now I bring you all together as a people. And guess what I'm expecting to see? A, a body of peace, a community that reflects this. And that's, that's both encouraging on one hand, but really challenging on another. It's encouraging because our text, as I said, said he is our peace. He's made two groups one. He's destroyed the barrier dividing the, the wall of hostility. He, his purpose, his, the reason he's doing it was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, to put to death their hostility. He preached peace to those who are far away, meaning the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near. You know, the, Paul's argument, his focus, of course, is on the relationship of Jew and Gentile. He's, uh, we're not sure whether there's a particular issue in the Ephesian church, but Paul knows, because he's an apostle to the Gentiles, that they are coming with a certain smugness. They, they are coming saying, and he, he unpacks this a little bit more in Romans 11. They're, they're coming thinking, well, the, the Jews blew it. They were people that covenant, but they messed up. And now we Gentiles get the benefit. We're now called. Jesus comes and he's, he's coming and he's talking to Gentiles like Roman centurions and, and Syrophoenician women. And he's also, and then Paul, his apostle, gets sent out specifically to the Gentiles. And they're like, thank you. And, they, and there's a certain, you know, maybe disparagement that's going on. But Paul says to them, you shouldn't be so smug. He said, your, your branch is grafted into the tree. So don't, you, you can't throw off on the Jews, Gentiles. But he says to the Jews, you can't throw off on the Gentiles. The Jews, these are people that are observing the law. They are observing Torah. They're doing it faithfully, literally religiously. And then suddenly these Gentiles come in and they're, they're full members. They don't have to do all the things that we have to do. They don't have to get circumcised. It's like you going through, you know, airport security and somebody, somebody's pre-TSA or pre-check and they're just going through, you're unpacking everything and, you know, you got to take your shoes off and you got to open up your laptop, you got to turn it on. Maybe you don't have to do that anymore. But they're just breezing right through. Shoes on, laptops closed, no problem. This is what, how the Jewish people would look at the Gentiles. But Paul is saying, all of you were in the same need of Christ. And each one of you, if you know Christ, has been reconciled to him. Nothing that you did, no, you couldn't claim Gentiles some sort of right as a Gentile or Jew some sort of right as a Jew. You all had to be at the same foot of the cross. The church that... Benny and I were part of, frequently we heard the phrase, you know, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Not unique to our church. If you're a decent Baptist, you probably were from that. <laughs> you probably heard that as well. But the ground is level. There is an equality. This is what Paul's talking about. And this is where the peace that he's talking about for the body of Christ is made known. We have peace with others because we have a common heritage. We have peace with others because our common heritage is actually transcendent. It's interesting when early church was describing this text and talking about it, they talked about Jew and they talked about Gentile, but they saw the church as literally a, a third race is what they talked about. The race of the Gentiles, race of the uh, Jews, but, but the church is a third race. It is a transcendent race. 
that's in this context of our, our current cultural moments, that's a powerful concept. That's something that I, I think churches, you know, the more we walk in that and, and let Jesus be our peace as individuals and be our peace as a fellowship, the more we will reflect that, that transcendent belonging, that we are one humanity, two have been made into one. But it's not, it's not only true of Jew and Gentile, it is true in this day and age of people from every ethnicity, every background, every age and every stage. Remember, as God is building his church, it will not be God's church if it's only Jewish people. And it will not be God's church if it's only Gentiles. You must have Jew and Gentile together. Revelation points us to every tribe and every nation being together. And so, you know, implications for us as this local community is to be ones who say, Lord, we want to be the church that you've designed. We, we want to be a church that has Jew and Gentile, that has Scythian, slave, free, male, female, Ethiopian. These are, these are groups that are, are in the New Testament that are coming into the body of Christ. And so it's one of the reasons why as a value we talk about being multicultural, because that we want to reflect who God has called his church to be. And we want to reflect the area that we're in. You've heard me say it, you know, we can do world mission without ever going to the airport just by virtue of who's coming to this area. And so that's my hope and prayer. I'm thankful for the multicultural group that we are at this point, but I point it out now because I expect God to do more in this area as we are faithful to be welcoming folks, as we are encouraging and inviting and saying, yeah, we want to be the people of God in all its manifestation. This will take some work. The gravitational pull of most churches is to just be a monoculture. Why? Because it's easy. Because if, you, you know, if you share a culture, you have the same communication and you have similar values and similar life experiences. And there's so much more that you don't have to stop and explain. Think about a time you were speaking to somebody who didn't have your language or, or you, you, know, you had, you're just trying basic communication. And then if you're sharing a meal, then you're trying to figure that out. And so... That's okay. That's part of what being the church is about. So for us as believers to be ones whose uh, peace is in Christ, we, we receive that for ourselves and in our lives. And when we come together and, and as we are living out this calling as a body, that idea of the peace of Christ is transcendent. As we talk about things, as we talk about direction in which he's leading us, as we talk about things that may come up, churches have stuff that comes up. Churches have directions that we can go here, we can go there. That, that's part of it. But in order to make sure those are fruitful and not unhelpful or beneficial and not divisive, to be in touch with that, that place where Jesus is our peace, that everything I am is beholden unto him. That when he says, be my body, he is saying to them, just like he said to the disciples, you feed him. Because he's asking us to be something that we cannot possibly be in ourselves and in our own or, or dragging our own ideas or, you know, our own, um, you know, must Hilda Dion beliefs. I'm not talking about doctrine. I'm just talking about, you know, directions and things like that. Who knows what this will happen? There, there's no big signaling going on. It's more of a preparation for, I think, what God is going to do or is, is already doing, and I believe will continue in us as a body. So we need to be, long story short, and we are called to be, and in fact, we already are people of peace. And that's why 
you know, the, the title of this sermon is The Peace of Christ Be With You Always, because it's only in that peace that we can truly be who he's called us to be, live the life he's called us to live, and be the body that he has already ordained us to be. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the sermon podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org. 